0: This podcast sponsored by the American Society for Information Science and Technology. Since 1937, ASIS has been the society for information professionals, leading the search for new and better theories, techniques, and technologies to improve access to information by the IA Summit. This year, your peers and industry experts spoke about how topics such as social networking, gaming, patterns, tagging, taxonomies, and a wide range of IA tools and techniques help users experience information and by Boxes and Arrows. Since 2001, Boxes and Arrows has been a peer-written journal promoting contributors who want to provoke thinking, push limits, and teach a few things along the way. For more events happening all over the world, be sure and check out events.boxesandarrows.com. In his presentation, Todd Zaki-Warfel focuses on methods for collecting data and the creation of personas, including some new visualization techniques that have made his personas even more effective and valuable to the design process. I hope everyone enjoys the podcast. Cheers. All
1: right, so who knows what a persona is? Okay, good, about two-thirds. Um, all right, show of hands again. All right, so what is it? By the way, when I speak, uh, you guys are going to have to participate, so there will be questions like throughout the thing. We're starting right now. What do you got? That persona is, person represent a larger group. Okay, so um, and don't be offended by this. Something about an archetype and some what was the other high level, high level and some other some other terms about profiles and and stuff, right? And rep, representative. That's key. Actually, that's a good that's a good uh, word to latch on to. Representative. Embodies user research. Okay. Um, anybody else? Yeah. Focuses on user user goals. Okay. Uh, fake representations of real users. Um, I hope to God they're not fake. But, <laughs> but, but uh, archetype was one word that came up earlier, and and archetype and and is kind of like fake, but maybe not fake, um, right, not fake in a phony sense, but they're kind of representative, right, they're they're uh, abstract, um, so my, my goal today is, and we're not going to get really, really, really deep in um, data analysis, like, if anybody in here, like, a statistician, oh, thank God, um, it, I have some samples I will walk through where we actually do get true statistical significance. We're actually hitting 95 97%. But since there are no statisticians in the room, I will tell you uh, that in reality, uh, I am going to show you guys how to collect some data, uh, but more importantly, how to represent the data in some really cool ways so that people can actually understand. Because if you have data that's great data, but people can't understand it, you have useless data. So. Um, I ran a workshop on this at UPA last year and I had two statisticians in a room and they were a bit disappointed because we didn't talk about T-scores and statistical significance. Um, I do have a couple examples actually where we did have 100% data for the uh, personas. It's for some internal applications, for some customer service uh, stuff for a big financial client and we talked to all 37 CSRs, so we had 100%. In most cases, you're going to get a representation, so you're going to get like a, a, a sub-sample set, uh, but there's a lot of different collection methods we can use to, to supplement those. Um, OK, so who here has used personas in the past? OK, a little over half. Who has actually created them? OK, how do you guys, how do you guys create them? How do you create them? OK, did user interviews? OK, distilled the information into some broad topical areas. OK, created an outline, made some groupings. OK, and how do you know how to do that? Like, where would you learn that? OK, a fortunate guy, Cooper actually helped him do it. Right? Um, all right, who, who else has, has made them in the past? Yeah? What, what like, techniques or whatever have you used? Okay. More of a marketing tool. All right. Who here thinks personas are a marketing tool? Come on, be honest. It's okay. I'm not going to call you out, right? And who thinks that they're not a marketing tool? Okay. Um, now, obviously, my talk is about design research personas. Um, if you ask me, I'll tell you they're both. Uh, there's, in in my opinion, there's two types of personas. There's like the marketing persona, and then there's like the design research persona. There's a lot of overlap, but uh, and I will get into some key differences. Right. So, um, speaking of Cooper, according to um, Kim Goodwin, right, who's probably one of the most well-known, I don't know, teachers of personas per se. Um, she refers to them as archetypes that you can use to help guide decisions about product features, navigation, interactions, and even visual design. And the uh, the key thing to focus here on how, you know, her description is to guide decisions, right? Um, so they're kind of a, a tool to guide your design decisions, uh, design research personas are. When When I talk about personas uh, for our company. I own a consulting firm in in Philadelphia. We're a design research firm. Um, So we do some research and we do some design. And whenever I talk about personas, um, the thing that that I try and focus on is that they're representative. Um, So, you know, they kind of represent a certain audience or audience segment, a particular type of user or customer, however you want to refer to them. Um, And the key thing that, that we try and focus on is that our personas focus on behavior activity. Um, they're also very contextual. That's really, really important to keep in mind. Uh, you may have an internal persona. We've got a, a financial client we're doing some work for right now. We created a, an initial set of personas for them of four uh, for a, an internal application. We're working on another internal application. We went back to those original personas to see if we could recycle them. Um, and we were able to recycle a good deal of them, but their whole day in the life story and some of their goals had to change because that initial application uh, is now a different application we 're using so they have to be contextual they, they really have to focus on the application or the system that you 're working on if not you 're going to run into a lot of problems because the whole goal of these things is to help you make good design decisions going forward so if you know the, if the data Bad data in, bad data out, right? You interview the wrong people, get bad data. You're using wrong data to, you know, bad data for your design decisions, what happens to the design? This is a question to you guys. What happens to the design? Bad design. It sucks, right? I mean, yeah. Um, So they're contextual and they're very, very specific. I'm going to show you that the model I'm going to show you today is actually not the model we started with. Our persona model has evolved very much over time. Um, and we started out probably with a little more narrative and we've actually shrunk the amount of narrative that's in there and gone more to like bullet points, you know, basically data points because we found that when we're actually designing, it's a little difficult to go, well, let me put it this way, it's not efficient for me as a designer to go through a bunch of narrative to kind of try and extract out the valuable data points that I need as my little checklist to say, yeah. OK, yeah, I've got that feature in there. I've got something that addresses that goal. I've got something that addresses that behavior. And yes, I've fixed that pain point. Right. Uh, so when we get to our model, what I'm going to show you is it's, it's very much a, a, a hybrid model. A lot of our artifacts, Nathan uh, Curtis just did a really, really good uh, talk, if you guys caught it, um, discussing like, some artifacts and deliverables and different patterns and stuff they use. Um, the, the, the artifacts that 8 Shapes uh, puts out, they're really useful, beautiful documents. Um, and he's, you know, very much like me. Very, very into efficiency. Uh, and so, you know, when I'm got that artifact that we're producing, we want to make sure that, that one, one doesn't take me any more time than needs to produce it. But at the end, it's also very useful. And when I'm using it, I can use it quickly and efficiently, and it's got everything I need in there, right? So, all right, why, why do we use them? Why do you guys use personas? Don't make me pull somebody out of the audience. I will do that. Uh you answered the last one. Okay, well yeah, but you didn't. Go ahead. Well, we work in oh. use model behavior. Okay. Both as how to design. Okay, so um, you use them for how to how to design stuff up front, but then also kind of as an ongoing how do we refine something after it's out there, right? Um, that's how you use them, but why do you use them? Oh, she's helping you now. See. <laughs> okay. Okay. So one of, one of the why reasons is to making make make sure that they're actually, it, it's it's something you use to help make sure that your design is matching up with customer goals, and also business goals, right? It's kind of like that benchmark. We've got some customer goals and some business goals out here, and it's, it's kind of documented in this persona thing, and then we can kind of use it as a, as a benchmark to go back and check our designs again. OK. What, why else? Uh, all right, we got all the way back here. What do you got? <laughs> now, from a business standpoint, I will tell you, anything you can build something that uh, sounds like you know what you're talking about, that's a good thing. So I'd agree with that. Um, Why else? Why why else do we use them? Um, uh, Okay, so who here hasn't had a client that has had a lofty idea of who their user is? Nobody? Come on. Okay, well, maybe none of you have. I've had a number. All right. Okay, so there's really a couple of important points here. So she said that uh, like the, it helps the team kind of focus on an actual person instead of you know, user A, user B, right? Um, now, I don't know about you guys, but I'm gonna expect that our experience is somewhat similar. Most of the time, whenever we're working on a project, there's a number of people involved. There's like maybe a business analyst, there's a product manager, maybe a project manager, maybe some designer from the client, a developer. Um, And in our experience, none of those guys really talk the same language, they don't really have the same vision, and their quote unquote interpretation of who's using the system, there might be like a 70% overlap, right? But 30% where there's a lot of room for interpretation can get kind of scary, right? Um, And so uh, that's one of the things that that it helps address. Any other reasons why, why we use them? Oh, dear God, yeah. OK, so the client who thinks they're the customer, right? Anybody, anybody seen that one? Right? I, I'm not going to say who, but we've had a client. Uh, we were working on a customer application. And this client continually said, but you know, I love how Outlook does XYZ, which is great if we're designing a business app, right? Um, but I can honestly say that my parents were one of the target audiences for this application. If I put my parents on Outlook, it would be a disaster. Um, so, yes, yeah, so it's, it's uh, you have these business stakeholders, like, well, I like how those ex- okay, that's great, but uh, John is actually, or Sarah is actually the, the customer. Chris? Uh, so force the design team to actually spend a lot of time talking about it. Yeah, so, one reason why is to force the design team to actually talk about users, and specific users, too, not like this, you know, hypothetical, oh, well, there's this average user that, you know, if if you read the inmate is inmates running the asylum, one of the things that Cooper points out is that the average user is locked up in some cell somewhere in Siberia. Who here knows anybody that has 2.5 children? No, and we're not counting like if there's one in the oven. What about the white picket fence with like 2.3 dogs? No. Okay, I don't either. So the average user just does not exist. Joel, you had to, you had. OK. Right, so the, the objective perspective, right? Um, so you know, for one, one, one reason, again, obviously, is that the average user doesn't exist, right? There is no such thing. And in fact, um, if you're designing a system for an average user, chances are that's going to be a really crappy, crappy system, or it's going to suck right? To, to quote somebody earlier. Um, the other reason why we use them, and hopefully this is the reason why you guys use them, is that th- this this notion of oh, that skipped over itself. Okay. Of keeping y- the you out of user, right? Anybody here designed a system that actually was for themselves? Okay, Chris has. You have. Christina has. So a couple of us, right? Um, I've been Fortunate in the 15 years I've been doing this work to, to to have worked on two systems where I would actually be the target audience. Two. I don't even know how many systems I've actually done over the 15 years, but I do know that two of them I was like excited about because like oh my like I would actually use this. Um, so this is a like as a designer, this is a really great kind of checkpoint or reference point for us to go. Well, look, I mean, I'm not designing this for myself, um, so let me go reference these people, uh, which which works out really, really well. So as a, uh, as a design research tool, they're a really powerful communication tool. Somebody brought up earlier the fact that there's a lot of different people on products or a project that you might be working on. And, and again, I, I've never been on a project where everybody's speaking the same language. I've yet to see a successful meeting where you throw an engineer and a business slash marketing person in the room, and they actually speak the same language. They'll actually be agreeing for 20 minutes and not even know it. Right? Um, so that's kind of a common thing. So they're a really, really powerful communication tool. And the thing to to focus on, again, when you're trying to use them as a communication tool, is this notion of the, uh, and this is what we're going to get into in, in a minute, is the, the knowledge of that user or customer. what's uh, That's very, very important. Uh, the activities that person is, and activities are kind of like Similar to goals, but basically the goal is what am I trying to do the activity is how am I achieving it, right? What tools are they using? Could be a web browser, could be the, the paper calendar that's stuck on the refrigerator, right? So what types of tools are they using to actually uh, perform those activities and get those goals accomplished? Um, influencers and pain points. Influencers are things that literally influence whether or not you're going to use the system. Could be cost, could be availability, could be compatibility with my current system, that type of thing, right? And pain points are just, quite frankly, things that either frustrate me or prevent me from using a system. We had a situation, I don't know, maybe like two, three weeks ago. We were testing an application for a a customer, a client. um, And the registration system didn't allow spaces in the name field. So it fired off like a you know they were probably doing some JavaScript validation, and it fired off an error, wouldn't let the person proceed for it. The person who was actually the participant who was trying to use the system. Would type in the first name, hit the space key, hit tab, go down to the next one, and three times the thing kept coming back saying invalid name. And we had, like, I was watching this going, what the heck is going on? Like, you know, I'm seeing her type a name, I didn't even know what was happening. And then after the third time, I started to figure out, oh, she's putting a space in. Come on, tell me that they're not preventing spaces in names. My last name has a space in it, so, like, I wouldn't be able to register. This woman has a space, like, she's, so after the fourth time, she's like, I wonder if it's not, let me put a space in the name field. And I was just thinking, please, let like, I hope that's not the, and that was the issue. She had to delete the space out of her name. Um, you know, so, so those types of things are a little, little freaky, a little weird. So when we use Personas, when my company uses Personas, we use them for a number of different things, right? We obviously use them for design, which we've talked about. You know, they're a great tool for making design decisions, right, but we also use them for research. Whenever we're doing usability testing, uh, like say we're doing recruiting, For testing, We want to make sure we've got the right participants. So if we have created a set of personas for the client, we'll actually use those to make sure that we've got the right participants. Uh, But also for research, like if we're going to go out and do ethnographic-based interviews and they've got some existing personas, again, we want to make sure that we're lining up with the right people during that that research. And then we'll take the information we get from research and fold it back into the personas. Again, bad data in, bad data out. like I said before for recruiting they're really really important to us uh, even if they're these quote unquote straw men personas where they're just you know some very basic information they're not really data rich yet but they've got some almost like audience segmentation type personas right they're kind of just you know baseline personas we'll use those to make sure that we're recruiting the right people for testing that maybe we're even recruiting the right people for the interviews. Uh, again, some recent work we've done for a big financial client. They've got customer service reps in two different locations. Um, in one location they've got, you know, 30-some, and the other one they've got eight. And the, the group that, uh, for this one particular application, they had 30-some in a location. We didn't have time to talk to all of them. So you know, we picked out a subset, but we want to make sure that you know, of that subset, let's make sure we get a, a good, broad, and deep representation, and so we, we make sure we get everybody's views and pain points, everything represented in it, right? So for recruiting, um, they're a really, really important tool for us. Now, other reasons you might use personas? I'm going to tell you, but I'd like to maybe see if you guys can have some input. Okay, so for for like use case scenarios, right? And I'd still put that under design, but that's a good you know kind of a subset under design. So we've got these different businesses represented, and you can kind of give them some context for those people. And and, this is really key, um, is this notion of um, giving them a name, right? So that instead of user A, we can talk about Julie, right? And now, I don't know about you, but for me, when I'm talking to somebody that I know, and I'm like, well, yeah, you know. Joel's got this great bike, and uh, he just bought a new Moto Guzzi, he sent me some photos from Flickr, and people that know Joel will instantly go, oh, Joel, yeah, rides a bike, lives in Virginia, and like, all these things just start going through your head, right? I don't have to explain, he's shown a photo over here, it's a really sexy bike, let me tell you. This thing's beautiful. Right, so, um, but you know, you you give the person, as soon as I say the person's name, if you know that person, all the little data points underneath just start flowing into your head immediately. Right. If, if it's user A versus user B, you start to go, it's this thing called cognitive load it means your brain has to start processing things to figure out what's going on, so user A. Is user A the, the girl with the, or is that the guy that lives in, so you give them a name and all that kind of goes away, so it makes it faster to make that connection and, and make sure that you're on the same page. Um, outside of using them for design or for research, what other mechanisms might you use a persona for? Okay. Yeah, and I'll we'll actually show you a case where we've done that as well. We have primary and secondary personas. So um, from like a business standpoint, they can be used for prioritizing features and builds. Like if you're like in a, an agile environment and you're doing, you know, you're going to do a release, you're going to do a three, four week sprint, uh, that can help you. Well, for this release, let's focus on some activities that are key to the, to the primaries and the secondaries I will get around to a little later. You can use them to identify, I'm sorry, if you, if you keep updating them, you can use them to identify industry, industry shifts. Yeah, now there's, um, there's a really important piece of our persona profile I'm going to show a little later that's actually, hopefully going to address it if it doesn't let me know. But um, industry shifts are something that uh, are important to us from a design standpoint. They're important for the business. And not only industry shifts, but also seasonal shifts right think about holiday shopping If your amazon you see this huge spike around christmas what's that mean to you from a business standpoint right you maybe maybe have to hire some additional resources at christmas time uh... maybe some additional customer service reps if you're into it Right around tax season, whoa! Hey, we get this huge spike between January and March. Um, that means something to you from a business standpoint. So, if there's a way to maybe represent that in the persona, that you know, hey, along the you know, during a period of a week or during a period of a year, whoosh, you get this huge spike. Uh, it does a couple of things from a design standpoint. It lets us know that you know, if there's a, a dashboard for this user or a sign-in screen, once they come in and they land, you know, maybe there's certain materials like uh, I've got an e-trade account. Okay? Uh, when I sign into E-Trade around tax season, there's a little messaging thing that comes and says, hey, by the way, you know, these documents are prepared and ready for you for your tax stuff. I love that. There's a lot of things I don't like about E-Trade, but that's one thing that I'm like, that's huge for me, because I don't have to go searching for it, right? It's like, it's up front. And they only do it during you know, that particular time of the year. So it's contextual, it's conditional, um, and I think that's a fantastic feature. It's actually useful. okay okay what was the last thing to do what uh, train. To, to train yeah train. okay so this is something i was trying to get to right training um, and i'll be honest we never really thought they'd be used for training and this was kind of an accident that happened um, and um, we had a technology Customer that we were redesigning uh, they, they basically they, they sell network equipment, right uh, they have this fantastic business model. they go on eBay and they buy uh, old network equipment from like banks that went out of business and stuff for next to nothing and then they basically run it through like you know the, the Lexus or the BMW certified new program. they run it through like this 10 step recertification program and they sell it at or above retail. yeah, you guys are like, what? As soon as they told me that, I was like, "Okay, how do you sell refurbished products at or above retail? Well, what happens is, let's say you're a big financial company like Citibank or Bank of America or one of those places, right? You're building a data center. These companies have very specific hardware requirements. You can only use the Cisco 3897 model, right? That's the only model you can use. Cisco doesn't really make anything, they have two places that basically assemble the products and ship out. There's a six week lead time to get that router from Cisco. This company will get you a certified new one next day. So if you've got a router that went out, six week lead time and you're a big financial company that's losing tens, hundreds of million dollars a day potentially if that router goes down, you're gonna pay a premium to get one that's actually gonna work, right? So they have this fantastic business model. we built some personas for their site and what happened was their marketing team and their customer service reps threw them up on this you know war room that they have right and started using them to train new customer service reps that came in the door these guys went so far as to put them on their intranet so that when new customer service reps were getting calls they could pull up the persona on the intranet so they could have some context about who the person was they were talking to and, and they actually found that they were Getting customers' needs taken care of like sixty to seventy percent faster. We didn't even tell them to do this. They just thought, well, hey, you know what? They're good for that. Maybe like they can help us reduce support calls. I was blown away by this. I was like, that's fantastic. I'm going to steal that, and I think I'm going to use it later on for something else. So, right. So, um, so they can even be used for training, right? Which is really, really fantastic. Um, All right. So we're going to go through some tips now for how to make better data-driven design research personas. Okay. Um, and, and by the way, if you haven't guessed by now, while I'm talking, you guys can ask questions like as I'm going through. So don't you know, wait till the end. So, All right, so the first thing is you have to use multiple resources. You can't just have one source of data. Why? The context can be skewed and the data can be biased. What do you mean by that? Like give, me, give me an example of a resource. Okay, so I sat down and interviewed somebody. There may be some bias there, right? Either the person might be biased or, unfortunately, the person who did the interviewing might be biased. We've had this happen where we've gone in and and, um, sometimes we'll take clients with us to do ethnographic research and sometimes we don't. And on occasion when we take a client with us and the person we're interviewing says something, the client goes, so what you mean is, and I'm thinking, oh no, that's not really what they mean at all. so you know, the client takes like a very direct relationship to what that person said, and we just kind of take like a, well, we'll run it through our little filter and actually extract out what they really mean, which isn't really what they said, right? There could be some bias. What what other reasons why you should, you know, why should you use multiple data points? Example, profile, no, come on. The HR, the, like, they're... <laughs> he said, he said the HR profile might actually be a little different than what the person's doing for a job, for for lack of a, a, a right? Um, we... Sure, so like their, their the profile might actually be different than their kind of day-to-day tasks, right? Uh, another key thing to keep in mind, kind of related to that, is uh, we were doing some work for a, a, a pharma client about a year and a half ago. And for this pharma client, they had these very specific roles. Right? Um, so we were doing some work on their intranet. So what they expected was, you're going to come back with an HR persona. And we didn't. And they couldn't figure out why not. And what, that was because what we found out was that there isn't actually an HR persona. Inside of HR, there's worker B type people, which are like the, assist, you know, the admin staff people. But that persona isn't just in HR. They're also in this line of business, and that line of business, and that line of business. Um, And just because they're in a department doesn't mean that their activities are different. Or, flip it around, doesn't mean that because they're in HR that their activities are actually the same, right? There's different behaviors and profiles within that, that business subset. Another reason why you, I will say, must use multiple data resources. Anybody? Yes. Data tends to lack humanity. Get the two and a half kids, kids, right. So here's the thing. Um, I consider myself a researcher. Um, And so whenever I see stats on stuff, my first response is, all right, well, how did they collect the data? Right? Um, Because in my experience of a long time of doing this, data never lies. Data will not lie to you. But you can interpret it a bunch of different ways. Right? Um, Last year, I actually read uh, the the statistic on uh, 50% of marriages fail. Do you guys know where that came from? No? See, I didn't either until like nine months ago. And I was reading um, basically, I was reading some article or whatever, and I don't remember where it was from. But it actually, it basically showed where that data came from. The fact is that 50% of marriages actually don't fail. Where the data came from was that there was one year where they ran some survey. That's your first problem. They ran a survey, and during that one year, in the United States, there were the the, the number of people that got married, there were half that many that got divorced for that one year. That's not the same thing as 50% of marriages are failing. What that means is what? It means that during that year, a certain number of people got married, and half of that number got divorced. That doesn't mean that half the people that got married got divorced. That's two completely different things, right? But, but how many times have you heard 50% of marriages fail? right? All the time. That's actually not what the data said. That's what someone said the data said, right? Um, yes. Absolutely. Different types of research yield different types of data. Um, I don't want to bash anybody in here, but if you've ever spoken to a marketing person, they focus on what kind of data research focus groups I'm sorry? Yeah, say it a little louder cuz I'm the only one with a microphone. Customer satisfaction surveys Christian? Oh, you got another one. Well, then hang on to it for a second. Um, all right, let me let me let me flip this around a different way. There's basically two types of data, right? Qualitative and quantitative. You guys know the difference? Um, I had it for the longest time. Uh, kept confusing them, but in short, you know, qualitative, think quality, it's a little more, I don't know, not shady per se, but, you know, there's a little more emotion involved in it, right, it's kind of touchy-feely, quantitative, think quantity, big numbers, right, marketing research tends to focus on big numbers, you know, we surveyed 10,000 people and this is what we found. Um, Ethnographic and anthropological methods tend to focus a little more on qualitative. We're going to go out in the field for like six months and watch people run around their village and see what happens, right? Um, And the people that focus on quantitative are a little uncomfortable with qualitative, and the people that focus on qualitative are a little uncomfortable with quantitative. Uh, But they they both have benefits, and they both have certain shortcomings, right? Uh, Quantitative data is a great way to find out what someone is doing. It is absolutely horrible at telling you why. Quantitative data will not tell you why. It can't. You like the color green? Well, yes or no. Okay. All you know is what I do, what I like. You don't know actually why I do that. And if I tell you why I do that, you probably shouldn't believe what I tell you, because self-rating is notoriously just unreliable, right? On the flip side, qualitative data is really good at extracting why somebody does that, but it doesn't necessarily always tell you what they do. You can kind of get at what, um, but, you know, by using the different methods and kind of balancing them out, you get a really good mix of, all right, well, we have a pretty good sense of what people are doing and why they're actually doing it. Christian, did you want to throw your question out now, or- Okay, if you guys didn't hear this, that is awesome. Um, so, in the state of Florida, the majority of Floridians are born Latino and die Jewish. Sounds a little strange to me. Yeah, Nobody knows everybody and no thing knows everything. Right? Um, okay, so as far as, mul- so you know, make sure you use multiple sources, right? I will tell you that whenever we build a, pers- a data driven persona, we use no less than three different resources. Sometimes we use more, but we are committed to using no less than three. Um, and again, uh, one of the things you'll find out about the, I don't know, the way that I do my work and the deliverables that we produce and how we do our design and our research i 'm very much about balancing things i'm very much about trying to get some qualitative, some quantitative um, and just kind of keep things in balance because you know i 'm a firm believer that there is no one right way to do something you know pretty much everything is gray with the exception of you having to pay taxes and die you know outside of that everything else is kind of like you know variations of of, of what goes on so as far as there's there's internal and external resources. That's not a, uh, a truly accurate classification, but, you know, in short, we've got kind of internal things like stakeholders, maybe some customer service reps. Speaking of a biased data input, uh, input point, right, like uh, who calls customer service? The two people, right, the guys that are retired or have nothing, you know, they've got nothing to do during the day. Um, So you got retired people, unemployed people, maybe some college students that got nothing better, and people are really bored out of their minds that you somebody to talk to. Right? So when you you use customer service or customer support as a data input point, just kind of keep that in mind that that's not truly representative of the entire customer base, it's a small subset, right? Uh, but these are some really good internal resources you can use. Uh, web analytics, again, will tell you what but not why. Uh, stakeholder interviews will give you these lofty visions of who they think the uh, their customer is. Um, so you kind of take that information, and then you, you balance it with some external resources, right? Uh, so if you can, talk to their actual customers. Now, who's able to actually talk to your actual customers or your clients' customers. This is where everybody's hand actually goes up in the air. See, a lot of you guys think that you can't. But the reality is that you can. Now, legal might try and get in your way. But off the record, there's ways to get around legal, right? Um, Little thing like Yahoo Groups and Craigslist, you can go out and say, here's the deal. We're doing some independent research for a very large financial firm or a large telecom company, right? You don't really mention the name so that you're covering your end when it comes to legal because they don't want the company name mentioned. And then you can do like an online survey to filter out people, pre-screen people, and in there, if you're doing financial work, you could maybe include a couple financial company names. One of them would be your client and then a bunch that aren't your client, right? Uh, For a telecom company, same thing, one that is your client and a bunch that aren't your client. And then you can put some logic in there to kind of filter out the people that you don't want to talk to on the back end. And so, hey, now I've got ten people that are actually my client's customers. I didn't have to involve legal. I didn't have to involve their marketing people. You know, um, I know this is getting recorded and probably published somewhere, but oh well. So there's, there's ways to get around that. Um, I can say when we first started trying to do this, um, we weren't super successful, but it wasn't because... We couldn't. It was because I was a little too nervous about it. I was like, oh, legal's telling us no. What do we do? Um, But you can actually always talk to your customers' customers. We redesigned the AT&T wireless e-commerce site years ago before they were AT&T and became singular, cellular, one, whatever, and we're AT&T again before that. Um, And... This was like this ridiculously crazy timeline. In six weeks, we had to redesign the whole entire site, and uh, we worked with a, a large firm, Critical Mass, up in Canada, to do it. And during the initial phase, I, I won't do design without doing some research. Um, the uh, AT&T said, "We don't have time for research." I was like, "What are you, are you kidding me? We, you just want us just to throw some design stuff out there?" Yeah, there's no time for research. So we went down the street at lunch to the cell phone store that actually sold AT&T phones. And talk to customers at the AT&T and Rogers wireless store down there to find out you know, what plans they buy and what phones they buy and why they buy them and so on and so forth. It took like an hour, right? But we didn't have time to do it. So there's, you, know, you just kind of have to think outside the constraints that you're, you're dealt and uh, find ways to kind of to get around that. Um, there will be some times where you can't actually talk to the customers, but maybe you can go into the custom, custom the, the forums. Like if you're if you've got a big client, they've got online forums. You can go in there. Um, there's a I won't say who, but there's a really large entertainment company that does that, and uh, they use that as an input source. And the last one that we use, and I think this is one of the things that makes a difference with uh, with personas, a big difference is somebody you know. Um, why would you want to use Someone you know. And let me clarify this, that it should be someone you know that after you've got some internal resources and some external resources and you've kind of, you know, run it through some, you know, analysis a little bit and you're like, okay, I think I have an understanding of maybe we've got three or four or five profiles here, Um, just to clarify, it should be someone you know that fits one of those profiles, not some random someone you know, okay? You know, just, you know, call up your Uncle Ted and, hey, I want to get, you know, who, and it's about, uh, I don't know, watching video online, and the guy doesn't have a computer. Make sure that it's someone you know that fits that profile. Why would you use someone you know that fits that profile? Yes. Okay, so let's say you're doing work in a industry, like pharma, legal financial, right, and the people that you're talking to, maybe you can't record it, right, um, they can't release certain confidential information that they're bound by contract, and even off the record they won't do it. Um, so again, a way to get around that, you know, if you've got somebody you know, you say, well, by the way, I'm not really going to use your name. Um, you know, we'll change a bunch of information about you, but if, you know, maybe I'll just I'll use a quote from you or whatever, but there's a way to kind of tap into that information that's, you know, highly confidential pro- pro- proprietary. Um, other reasons why you would use someone that you know. Oh, come on. Anybody else? Okay, how's that? Was- Okay, in case you forget, you know, it's like, oh, all right, well, maybe the first two didn't get it to me, maybe this one will get it to me, right? So in case you didn't get that information uh, in the first two resources, you've got a third one to kind of make sure you don't skip something. Person, you know, maybe more open to you, kind of gets back to the, they'll, you know, tell you about proprietary information. Okay, so like you get a little bigger picture understanding. I'm gonna actually give you an extremely simple reason why you use people that you know. Oh, it's on the screen, man. Uh, Because it keeps you grounded, and they're more realistic. So wait a minute. So this has been on the screen for like two minutes, and nobody actually read that to me. It's because they ran out of coffee, isn't it? That's what happened. All right. um, So we were doing. We we did some training for a uh, a. educational loan company about a year and a half ago. And during the training, we actually had them create some data-driven personas. And uh, most of them were very, very good. And this one was mind-blowingly fantastic. It was this 14-year-old kid that uh, on his way into school one morning after swim practice, was going to the guidance counselor's office and stopped in the guidance counselor's office and talked to her about possible career paths for himself. And then after school, had a part-time job during the week, um, I think like at some you know, retail store or restaurant or something on the weekends, mowed lawns. and I mean, this kid was involved in all kinds of stuff. And I asked the people that created it, I was like, do you know any 12-year-olds like that? And they're like, well, no. I was like, because I don't either. That kid's like a highly overscheduled CEO that's working 90 hours a week, you know? Um, so the, the thing is, there's, there's two reasons, two really basic fundamental reasons why you use someone you know. One, it keeps you grounded, right? You can look at this person. Uh, we, we designed a product for some, uh, a small business product. And one of the personas uh, is a small business owner. I've got a friend. I mean, I'm a small business owner, but I wasn't going to use myself because that introduced bias. So I've got a friend that's a photographer and a landlord. He owns two small businesses, right? And this particular client we were working for, he actually has them for his you know, his uh, online services. And so we, the, he was my person that I knew, right? I called him up, and we had already gotten the two other data input points and kind of walked him through, all right, well, you know, publishing your site online and doing email and, and you know, phone and that type of thing, maybe advertising your business, like, walk me through how that works and, what you know, what you do and what's worked for you, what hasn't worked for you. Um, and it really helped us take that small business person and really ground them. And then another really fantastic thing happened. In the middle of the design process, we had come up with three different design solutions that we all thought were pretty good. But there was something about it that wasn't quite right. right? So I called him. I called him up directly. Now, I'm not going to be able to really, on Saturday at 3 in the afternoon, be able to call up the CEO of company XYZ or some people that I surveyed online. But I called this guy up. He was out in Utah taking some photos, took my call. I walked him through the two or three different processes we had, and he was like, well, but here's the thing. You, you, you can't do the last part where you're going to require me to punch in some serial number, because like, right now, right, I'm on the road. I don't have that serial number from that product I got to punch in. Whoa, man, we really missed that one, right? But I can call him directly. So if there's a question when you're in the, of the design phase, if it's somebody you know, you just pick up the phone and call them or email them, right? You talk to the person directly, which, again, makes that persona a lot more grounded and very much more realistic. Right? The other thing is that when you're selling personas to the, to the client, this notion of we're going to base all of our designs on this, you can tell them, oh, and by the way, about 80% of this is based on someone we know personally. I'm not going to, but I could give you his name and phone number if you want to call him up. You know what happens when you do that? You get instant buy-in. Instant buy-in. Because now the client knows that you're not just pulling data out of the sky and trying to throw something together that looks sexy. They're like, wow, this is like a real person here. Like, his name's not John, I know that. But like, you know, does he really drive this car? Yeah. Does he really live in that town? Well, actually, he lives like five miles from there. But yeah. Does he really do that for a living? Yes, he does. And they're like four months pregnant? Yep. Oh, cool. Um, so it, it, it just validates them a little more, right? Another tip, only build what you need. Don't build any more personas than what you need to. Okay. You don't need 10. I'm not going to tell you what the number is. And in fact, actually, whenever we start a client engagement, um, we never tell them how many we're going to produce, because we don't know. We say, well, the data is going to tell me how many I need. Right? And after we go through the analysis of data, we may have three, we may have four, we may have five. Uh, never build more than you need to. Now, this is the tricky part. So you've collected all this stuff. Yes, Joel. Um well, that's a good question all right so from a uh, from a consultant standpoint like what's your basis of level of effort and time for for uh doing this work well, we have an advantage oh yes two weeks. right um so and i and I don't do that maybe I should but um I I don't put a limit on the number that we build. And part of that is just based on experience. I know it's not going to be a ton. Um, I've yet to run a situation we've had to build 10. Uh, We did have one client we built seven for, but it was four primaries and three secondaries. Um, We also have an advantage that we have a research framework that we use where when we plug the data into this thing, um, we have some tagging that goes on. And it allows us to actually go into this thing and look for patterns and gaps. Um, So it actually helps us see how many there are, uh, which makes it a little faster for us when we're doing this work and 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 it's a little fuzzy because we've had some that have been two we've had some that have been you know five six seven but i i know that you know in the big picture some i'm not going to be as profitable on some i'm going to be like really profitable on um and while you might think a client's going to be a little like well we don't know what we're paying for right would you come back to them you say look here's the deal i can't tell you but your data will tell me how many there are then they're like, oh, okay, they're good with that because it, since it's data based, you know, it's 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 driven by some data. Then they're like, well, you're not going to just make it up. It's it's not like I'm paying you per word, so you're going to produce more so that you can charge more. Um, so we basically just give them a, a pretty much a, a fixed level of effort that's around two weeks. We can usually uh, do the interviews and the analysis and, and present the uh, personas. So getting, getting all this, so you've got like goals and activities and behaviors and all kinds of other stuff. Getting this all on one page is really really tricky. Yes. Oh, man. Um, yeah, but I have to show this thing. Yeah. Um, this is our one-page model. I'm going to show you two versions, because this is like an initial one. And what you'll see is there's a, there's a quote up here, right? which is really important, because the quote is basically, you should be able to read that quote and just get a one quick, really fast snapshot of, OK, I know who I'm talking to and pretty much what she's suffering from. right? Um, and then you've got this day in the life which is two or three paragraphs. And it has to be specific and contextual to the system that they're using. Don't include things about their dog and their cat and their car if you're not building some pet seat carrier. right? It's irrelevant. Um, we keep that piece short. And then we've got some, some other things over here, like their goals, questions, influencers. Um, and this thing here, this is the key piece that I'm going to get to in just a second. Uh, that's what we refer to as our uh, persona DNA model. right? Um, this guy you 'll see it 's similar type uh, breakout, totally different application, and then all you 've got this little timeline thing at the bottom, right um, And just really quick, one thing I want to point out is that that piece in the top right hand corner is the most significant thing on the entire persona profile. It takes up maybe twenty percent of the screen it 's got about eighty percent of the data you need to do design okay and here 's why so we 've got this DNA chart. We've got, you know, knowledge mapped out over here, activities and interests. And these things right here, these are the different activities that they're going through, maybe different applications they're using, um, different goals they've got. And then we've got a, a 1 to 5 scale here that basically, OK, how important is it? It's, it's kind of insignificant all the way up to they have to have this to do their job, OK? Um, and basically how this thing works is you've got these three different categories. Life cycle is the other one. And what that does is maps out along the course of maybe a month to a year. Um, what's this activity look like? Are there, are there, And what you want to watch for are, you know, are there certain peaks and valleys, right? You know, some downtime here. It's pretty much level over here. Oh, hey, during the week, man, check this out. Monday is huge for this person. Tuesday's really light. Wednesday's a little bigger. And Thursday and Friday, they're getting hammered, right? Not hammered like, you know, the guy's drinking rum, but hammered like they're really, like, busy, right? Um, so the other piece that's important, then, is this big, long bar, which you'll see in some cases it's really short, right? In other cases, it's really long. That's the entire data set. So for this one, for instance, experience, your knowledge. Uh, under the knowledge bracket, we've got experience, uh, how, how much experience they have doing this. This one's a little odd because it's anywhere from one to five. The reason for that is for this particular profile, we've got brand new people coming in the company and people that have been doing this for five years. So there's a, a big spread on that data chart. This is what we've got from one to five. You know, There's a, there's a pretty. The, the, the lowest data point and the highest, there's actually a big spread. But then you look at the next piece, which is this little kind of bubble in the middle, that's where your 95 to 90 percent data set is. So you can see that, well, while we have a pretty broad stretch, most of it is concentrated in like a four and a quarter, you know, maybe four to five- and a half range. Um, And that's important so that you can, you look at the big bubbles and kind of go, all right, well, that's where I need to focus as far as what things are important, not so important. And then, you know, there's a horizontal hash mark that kind of tells you, uh, for that person, you know, here's where the average mark is. Which is really important. You can see their average mark is pretty high, even though you've got low data sets. Uh, So that can tell you maybe you've got some outliers in that particular activity, right? Um, And then the last thing that we do is we'll put these little pink dots on top of certain, like this is Great Plains. Great Plains is a financial system that this company uses. For this particular profile, it's uh, really important to them. They have to have it to do their job. And you'll see there's a couple pink dots. The pink dots we drop on top, those are ones that for that specific profile, these are really key. And you should focus on them during the design phase. And you'll see we don't do it to all of them, right? There's male, which is in the middle. And male's pretty high. But male's not unique to this person. Every person in this profile set we've got is going to use mail, right? But for this person, Great Plains is really significant. So maybe if you're building a dashboard for this person, you might have a direct link right to Great Plains for them. For somebody else, you're going to see that thing drop almost off the chart, and you're not going to use that. Um, The reason that this thing is really, really important to us, again, is this maps out for us all the different activities, maybe other applications we need to tie into. So it acts as like a a, a good foundation checkpoint for us. So, all right, well we either need to tie into these, integrate with them, or just provide some like a quick link access to it, so they don't have 15 browser windows open across the bottom, right? Um, and so it, it allows us to do those context, contextual conditional screens for for these people. Um, and, and again, you know we've we've got all the systems mapped out across the bottom, and then you've got this life cycle that tells us from either design standpoint or from maybe like a business standpoint, when we need to maybe ramp up services or maybe we can kind of, you know, kind of tone things down for a little bit. Um, these are subtle little things. But again, in, a, in a, an overall persona profile, this thing for us, we present our personas and we go through like this story and we read all the data points at the bottom. But time and time again when we come back to the conversation with the client is this thing, over and over and over again. Because it's really small, right? Uh, the one thing I don't like about it is I have to explain it first, and that really bothers me, so I'm still looking for a model that's better that I don't have to explain. But I explain it once, we use it time and time again, and as soon as the client gets it, you know, even if you can't read the bottom stuff, you can look at that and go, OK, there's some really important stuff, and there's some stuff that doesn't really matter to them, right? Like the guys at the back probably can't read it, but you can kind of see like, you know, where the important stuff is, and then where the stuff that doesn't really matter to them is, right? Uh, so for us, this is something a recent addition to our personas uh, that is a really great way of showing the data that we just started doing about the last year and a half. And it's been a huge, huge asset to us. So while you're collecting the data and you've got these different resources, um, that's important. I'd say from you know, my own personal experience that the representation of it in a way that's easily digestible is even more critical than the actual data that you get. I've got some other stuff, but we can talk about it later on. Yeah. Thank yeah. OK. Thank you. Thanks.